Well, good morning again. We, as we move over into our teaching time, um, we've come to Romans chapter 15 in our study of um, Romans. As we have, over the last, I think more than a year, gone back and forth between the books of Genesis and Romans, and we are here at the end. There are 16 chapters in the book of Romans, and so we are very near uh, to the end of this study. Uh, we will stop next week for the season of Advent, and we will do something else. We're going to go through the Gospel of Matthew and actually go through um, one of the birth accounts that were given in the New Testament of Jesus, and then we'll pick back up and finish uh, Romans about, I think it's the first weekend in, in February. I want to jump right in here to the reading before kicking us off, but just a few points of explanation so that we know what Paul is talking about here as we read it. Um, that we are here at the end of the letter. This is, as we've been saying the last few weeks, this is a period of the letter to the Romans of application after chapters and chapters of explaining the gospel, the good news about Jesus um, and how he gave his life to so that we, those sinners, can have peace with God. This is both to the Jew and Gentile, as the Jew and the non-Jew. And he is right now unpacking for us how that gospel has implication not just for ourselves, but also for our social relationships, the horizontal relationships of people who are all a part of the body of Christ. And here in particular, he's talking about to an audience of both Jew and Gentile. And when he says here in verse 1, he's going to say, we who are strong, this is picking up on language that we, list, we learned about last week in chapter 14. And that one of the issues in the church at that time was that we had those who Paul characterized as weak. And by that, he just means that their consciences were weak and they were burdened by the fact that they believed they had to continue uh, certain food laws and festivals uh, that were the case in the Old Testament. And then you have this other group of people who, um, who he's calling the strong here, who were probably mostly Gentile, probably some Jew, more progressive living Jews who have come to see in the gospel that Jesus has fulfilled all of those things and they are no longer apply, that they don't have to be followed in the same way that they used to in the past. And as these things have, um, these two groups have created a lot of potential for conflict, he is giving us these words um, in order to promote unity within the church. So, all that being said, let's go straight to our text and uh, read it this morning. This is Romans 15, verses 1 to 13. And this is God's Word. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore... Welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed you, for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, 
in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we again ask that you would send your spirit as we study your word this morning that you would convict us, you would encourage us, you would align us with your truth as you have revealed in the gospel. Uh, this is not something that any human words can do. This, this takes a movement on your behalf uh, to penetrate our hearts. And so we ask that you would do that, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come here, as I said um, in introducing, that Paul is writing to a church that is divided uh, largely on Jew and Gentile lines. And last week we saw um, a lot of particular points of application in how Paul is encouraging them of how the gospel actually unites these groups together and calls them to unity, uh, to love each other and to bear with one another. And we see those same things coming up here again. But this also marks a transition where rather than talking about the particulars of the food laws and the holiday laws and those kinds of things, he is in a way zooming out and helping this church view the bigger story of God's redemption of his people, his relationship with his people since the beginning, and particularly how this whole story, both in the past and in the present, is a story that is ultimately about Christ. And it has never changed. It has always been the case. And this, some of the things that stood out to me initially, this, there's a very interesting relationship here in how our vertical relationship with God, that what we believe about God and our own standing before God actually has implications on how um, our horizontal relationships, how we live with each other and how we um, move towards one another in community. Um, And to understand this, we have to do a little bit of work here to step into the shoes of what it meant at the time to be a Jew, a descendant of the nation of Israel, Israel, and a Gentile, um, a new convert that has recently come into the fold in the realm of God's people. And if we do that, um, let's just do that as a thought experiment here. So if you are of a Jewish descent... There are a lot of parameters around you as a people. There are a lot of rules. There are a lot of laws. There are a lot of holidays, like we saw what we can eat, what we can't eat. You can eat and what you can't eat. But this is something that would have been very near and dear to you as a person and your own sense of identity. And that a lot of effort went into this. There was a lot of effort that went into keeping these laws. A lot of your family holidays, as we are thinking of now, are, are centered around um, the festivals uh, that you would have celebrated as a Jewish people. Um, and in a sense, this would have been something that, if you had grown up in this, that you really have given your life to, 
and spent a lot of effort doing. It has been very formative in how you view yourself and who you, you view yourself, um, uh, the way that you look at yourself. So just setting these things aside, there would be a sense of freedom in it, but there would also be something that this change would be a little bit jarring and that there's a lot to get used to about this new way of life, um, of living together with um, in the middle of God's people. And to beat that, you've got all of these Gentile people who are here, who are now a part of all of these promises that have not put in all of that effort, that have not been there since the beginning. They're just newcomers, and it's probably a little annoying to put up with this um, and their views that they know more than you do about what it means to be a member of God's people. And I really think this is something that is at the center of this passage that Paul is giving, that he's giving to us. It is about the particulars of what it means to be a part of the people of God, but I think we have a crisis here of chronology. That is the passage of time and how one era has moved into another era and there's a crisis that has happened within the people as a result of that. And I think we know deep down in many areas in life that a change in era often brings with it um, a social crisis. That the sense of identity of who you are, what it means to live out of this people has changed. And the ground doesn't feel quite as solid as it used to. Who's on top? Who's on the bottom? Those have all been shuffled. And it's anxious. It's an anxious circumstance. And this is a situation I think that Paul is writing and explaining this gospel to. I'll give you this illustration. Um, if you might or you might not know that in the southeast, back in the late um, 1800s, all the way up until World War II, then there was a, a baseball league that was centered around textile mills, called Textile League Baseball. Um, so you had mills where whole communities were formed around the mills. You work for the mill company, and each mill would have their own team um, that they would field, and you would compete against other mills. And it was actually a very competitive league. The best you can figure out is probably on par with AAA, like the league right under Major League Baseball now. If you've ever heard of Shoeless Joe Jackson, um, who Field of Dreams is about, um, the 1919 World Series played for the Chicago White Sox. He um, played for a textile mill in Greenville, South Carolina, and they have a little museum there now that's dedicated to him. So big name people. This is a big, big deal. But it's hard to find any literature about this. So one of the harebrained schemes I was involved in one time is that me and two friends who did not nearly have the appropriate level of experience to do this decided we were going to make a documentary about textile league baseball so that everybody would know um, how great it was, even though we hardly knew ourselves. So we spent um, several months um, contacting people and going around and interviewing and filming interviews with former players that were still alive or spouses of former players, of those kind of things. And um, it was a lot of fun. One of the interesting aspects of it is that they would all talk about baseball and the good old days and how important they were then. But they would also, almost every single time, go back and start talking about the job that they did in the mill. And that they would talk about how there was this machine, and I did this job, and I was the fastest person on the floor, 
I could pump out this um, volume per whatever time it was, or I knew this person, they could do this. This was just incredible. Um, these were skills that were important to these people that had essentially gone away. They were a part of an old era. And almost everybody lived in a rundown part of town, um, mostly elderly because of the time. Um, and if you just step back and reflect on this situation, you have this whole group of people that at one point in time were important. They were an expert at something. They were secure in life because of these skills. But now, when you leave the neighborhood and you go out and walk around anywhere else, the people that are important are these 18-year-old kids who are walking around with cell phones and who are competent with modern technology. An era had shifted, and you had one group that was very out of fashion, one group that is now in fashion and more useful than the old group, and socially, they were divided because of this. The change in era often brings with it a kind of crisis over identity, even for us. And I think this is a large part of what is happening with Paul in his day, with those who come from a Jewish descent um, and those who are coming in who are new to the fold and are creating, in a way, a new social order. And so what Paul is going to do here is he is going to focus in on a story. He zooms back to the whole story, and he is going to show that the uniting part of the middle of this situation is that every era, though it is in the past or if it is in the present, is actually a demonstration of Christ delivering on the hope that he has given this people and that he has called this people to. That the past and the present, they are all part of one story, and they are all part of one story that is about Jesus. Not just who he is, but how through history he is actually regularly delivering on the promises that he has made, giving confidence that he will finish the story. So I have essentially got two points, the way I want to look at this, and then we'll have um, a conclusion. How does this apply to us at the end? First, that God showed his faithfulness to the Gentiles through the Jews. Second, that God showed his faithfulness to the Jews through the Gentiles. Let's see if you can keep those straight. And then third, we'll look at how this applies to us. So let's first jump in here that... This that God showing his faithfulness to the Gentiles through the Jews. We see first he starts by addressing the Gentiles in verse 1. Or uh, when I say Gentiles, I'm going to use that term, but this is anybody who's in the quote-unquote progressive camp. Um, the newbies on the scene in their way of life. So he starts addressing them. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with um, those who are weak. And then you go down to verse 4, he's saying that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, that we might have hope. So in the first place, as he is addressing the Gentiles, um, he is telling them to look back and saying that this, that this past reality, part of the God people, it actually is very important to you currently and is something that you need to pay attention to. And there's two things here. In verse 8, you'll see that um, Paul says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness 
in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So in the first place, that God has established his promises through the Jews, through the nation of Israel and the Old Testament people of God. And as Jesus comes on the scene, he is finishing, becoming a servant to them, he is finishing a story that had already begun in the past. And that is that the whole reason any of this good news has come about is because way back in the beginning, even right after the fall, then God made a promise that he is going to finish this story himself where people messed it up. And he did this by calling into a people through Abraham, and he has continued through the years. And these were great, great, great promises. The promises that all families of the earth will be blessed, um, that there would be a, a redemption, there would be a covering of sin. We have these concepts of sacrifices. Uh, we have the temple. We have illustration of a people wandering through the wilderness and rebelling against God and being shown mercy again and again and again and again and again. All of these things are things that the New Testament writers are going to pick up on and use them to explain who Jesus is. So who Jesus is, what he has done, would not make sense if it had not been for the work that he had done through the Jewish people in the past, even before Jesus came on the scene. That the promises that he is delivering on had been begun with the people in the past. And the past was extremely important. But he says another thing here in verse 9, in addition to um, establishing these promises to the Jews, he also says he's done this in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So there is something about his relationship with the Jews that is actually displaying mercy for the Gentiles, that the Gentiles are learning about mercy through the Jewish people who have been in the past. One, their inclusion, that they have been included with the people of God. But two, the whole history of what it means to be a Jew from the beginning to the end is a story of enslavement and redemption, of rebellion and grace, of a rise and fall, of being made a nation and being kicked out and then being brought back again. It has been a story of mercy from beginning to end. And it is in that mercy, that picture of that relationship, that, there, that God's mercy has been displayed so that beyond the Jewish people, that others might know God's mercy and they might be included as well. Um, so here we see that his, his God has established his promises to the Jews. He has shown his mercy through the Jews. And that if you, for you Gentiles here in the mix, before thinking too highly of yourself, to remember that God has been active before and that what he has done before is the reason why you exist here now. Have any of you seen um, Aziz Ansari's comedy special? Um, I would recommend that you watch it first before watching it with your children, but it was enjoyable to watch. And there was something that um, stuck, out, stuck out to me at one point. He's going on this bit where he's naming people that have done bad, if not questionable, things. And he keeps, ra- he keeps asking the audience, like, so raise your hand if you're done with R. Kelly. Like, nothing to do with R. Kelly anymore. And everyone's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then he goes on and on, and he's, he's, he's making people feel uncomfortable 
because he keeps bringing up issues that are more and more and more gray. Like somebody who has posted something on Twitter um, back when they were 18 um, that now is in trouble for it now. Like, raise your hand if you're done with him. Like, you know, if you were a just, well, um, with good person, with good morals, then you will exclude this person and have nothing to do with him anymore. And the reason is funny is because he is, he is picking up on a social attitude that if you, are, if you are new on the scene, if you are enlightened, if you have come to see the true principles of, of justice and how the world should work, that means that you should disown everybody that has come before. That you should start out and make a new path and that there has to be a separation um, that has to occur between you and between other people if you are to be considered um, a good person for whatever that means. And it, that's complicated because he's talking about issues of true immorality, um, of morality that take a lot of wisdom to play out in society. But this attitude that in order to grow beyond, to develop in our understanding means that we have to separate from people who are in the past. And Paul is saying here quite, quite directly that in order to separate, that it is not necessary, it is not necessary to separate from those that you feel like you have moved on from. He is actually calling in terms of the people of God and we as a family here to look more at the progression of the story and about how Paul, how God has been involved from the beginning and to the end um, in order to come up with any kind of sense of identity and who we are and what we have. He's making a push towards unity with people that we think are out of date by looking at the way that God has acted in the past and how he has been faithful in mercy even to this people. And I do think here, before we can make an application of this, this applies us in a lot of ways, that we can disagree over worship, politics, social engagement, theology. Um, I even noticed in writing sermons, it is very easy to say, some people think this. You might have heard this. You don't want to think that. You don't want to listen to this ever again. And that can be a way to teach, but it also can come from an attitude that what is new and what has arrived and what is more enlightened is better. And this means that we have to separate from anybody who falls short of that attitude. And Paul says no. He says he has shown his faithfulness to the Gentiles through his relationship with the Jews. Second point here. God has also shown his faithfulness to the Jews through the Gentiles. And this, if we follow along here in our passage, starting um, 8 is kind of a hinge verse, we get down to this, to a slew of references from the Old Testament. And as I read it, I wonder if you pick up on this language that the word Gentile is mentioned a lot. And that all of these, they are, they are passages about the inclusion of the Gentiles and the Gentiles being able to worship right alongside with the Jews the same way as the Jewish people to the one God. And there's something interesting about how Paul is weaving this together here. This first quotation in verse 9 comes from 2 Samuel. Verse 10 comes from Deuteronomy. 11, the Psalms. And 12 in Isaiah 11. 
And if you were um, familiar with the Jewish people, you would notice that he is pulling quotes from every single part of the Jewish scriptures. He is pulling from the Torah, from the Pentateuch. He is pulling from the prophets in two places. Second Samuel was considered um, one of the prophets and also one of the later prophets in Isaiah. He is also pulling from the Psalms in the wisdom literature. And this is a way of illustrating that the whole existence and purpose of the people of God, of God's relationship with the Jewish people, has had in view the inclusion of the Gentiles all along. It wasn't for their own sake. It wasn't for them to have an exclusive relationship where it was just between them and God. It was always something that was to grow. It was always to bring in more people. It was always to bring in different kinds of people who didn't know God before, who did not have a relationship with him. The Gentiles were always the goal of the story. And so Paul is saying here, look, this creates social chaos in some ways that we have people from different backgrounds who can't get along. But the fact that the Gentiles are even here is a sign that God is still on the move with this people that he began a relationship with the beginning. The inclusion of the Gentiles should have been good news to the Jews, that God is actually through them delivering on the promises that he had given them in the very beginning. And this illustrates this bigger purpose of God that even since the garden before the fall came about, God has always been on a mission of expansion. He has always been about his name being known in places where his name had not been known. More territory being taken over. More ground um, being a place of worship. More people coming in so that the fullness of every tribe and tongue, every ethnicity, every place would be able to sing and worship of God together. This is the point of the story. And I want to illustrate this in a way. I asked Lauren how this, um, um, how this struck her, and she brought me to this illustration, which um, seems great. One of the things about being a mom um, is that you are continuously becoming an expert on something that passes away. So you become an expert of sleep training, you become an expert in feeding, you become an expert of potty training, all of these things. And these are all like these little windows of time where um, you become an expert in it, and then the child grows. And then those skills that were useful are not useful anymore. And there's a sense where um, that almost feels not fair to be such, like to have such competence and to have to learn new skills so quickly and them not to be able to translate long-term, um, to have the sense of being able to use them and display the worth from them. And there's just this sense of crisis that comes of, can come from that, of having skills that don't always appear to be useful. But at the end of the day, the whole reason why those go away is because they have been successful. And because the child is growing, and the child is getting what they need, they are being loved by their parent, and they are becoming their own person, and they are moving out. So rather than those skills being a slight, um, the fact that they pass away being a slight to you because you can't use them, they're actually a sign of the effectiveness of what they, have, of what they were for all along. The Jewish people was always about the Gentile being included. And change is hard, 
especially social change. And it creates a crisis when we smell like we get that sense that we are not as valuable as we used to be, that we have been passed over, the era has changed, our skills don't translate anymore. We no longer have an important place in this community. But the story of God is something that is unique and it is special, that as Christ has inserted himself in this story in every part, that it has become about him. As he has died and he has risen again, that he is the author of the story. He is the one who is able to turn death upside down. He is the one who gives worth. He is the one who gives relevance. He is the one who gets to decide how each one of our points in the story plays into the bigger whole. I think this is what Paul is calling his community to do. He's saying that at his core, in order for us to achieve unity, we have to recognize that God has been faithfulness to the newcomers through the oldcomers, and he has been faithfulness to the oldcomers through the newcomers. And how does that, as we draw this to a close, what does this mean for us? There's a sense where this was a point in salvation history that has already passed, and that today the first application is that we don't have to follow all the Jewish food laws and ceremony laws as we did before. Um, and that's why that happened, because Christ has come, and he has uh, fulfilled that part of the law in full and given us freedom. But I think there's a way, as we've been saying all along, that this struggle, this crisis of eras changing is something that we probably deeply relate to in many, many ways. And that we know what it's like to feel relevant one moment and not the next. Uh, We know what it is like to give a lot of effort to something at one point in life and it to pass by. We know what it is like to be an expert at something that passes away. We have life-changing ideas that are very relevant one moment, and then it seems like everybody else passes by. And while something that was important to us in our past is no longer important to anybody else. The political, cultural landscape changes under our feet. Our bosses change. Churches' programs come and go. Leaders become non-leaders. We move. Others move to us. Change happens. And we all have this battle with these many crises over our own identity when our social standing is in flux. But Christ, what Paul is saying here is that in the heart of this story, being about Jesus, there are two important concepts here we have to get. One, the whole story has been about Christ. From the beginning, he is the author. He has been pulling the strings. He has been present in every point, And he has actually been involved in unfolding each chapter exactly the way that he wants to. It is him who gives each person in each chapter the dignity because it is all the whole story comes together in him. It is ultimately about Jesus. But there's this other thing here that that's good to get um, kind of in an academic sense, but as that is the case, and we are looking at ourselves and how we play into that, that if Jesus is unfolding a story for us from the past into the present, then he is regularly again and again and again inviting us in, in our crises, to know him in more of an intimate way. Somebody said to me earlier, uh, a couple weeks ago, I think a president said this, to never waste a good crisis. 
and that these crises are actually the points where God is proving again and again and again that he is in charge of his promises and he will deliver whatever point of the story you tend to fall into. In the goodness and the wisdom of how Jesus operates, he operates in the long term in an unfolding sense, in a dynamic way, using the changes to even reveal himself, particularly in our points of crisis. And so what we are invited to do then is to take up these tasks that Paul has has called us to, to walk by faith. That even where we are weak, even where we feel out of place, to lean into the story that God is weaving and to look to Him. To hand Him our hearts, to embrace Him, to ask and question what He is up to. And then as we do that, as we embrace Christ for the significance that He gives in each of our stories, He asks us then that we would pray that we get the point. That we get the point of even what our own security is all about, and that it is not all about us, but it is about an ever-growing thing. And that the end of this story is a story of a whole community of people, every corner of creation bearing Christ's name and singing in glory together. That that is the end of the story, and that is our hope. Anything that we could find for ourselves, any significance that we could gain, pales in comparison. So we are invited even where we disagree, to welcome one another, to bear with each other rather than separate, to seek Christ as the middle, and to grow. And the only way we can do this is here in verse 6, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we're a community of people, even as we were reading that psalm earlier in the service, about crying out to God, about waiting And we get to hear all of our voices saying the same thing at the same time together. This is a picture of what it looks like. That a whole community, whatever crises they may be in, looking to Jesus for their own hope, their own significance, and their own glory, would together have one voice. And that's where unity comes. And I want to leave us with one illustration. I know I'm over time here. But I think this is an important thing for us to reflect on, especially as we are moving into a season of a search for a new senior pastor. And that is we as a church are approaching a change in era for one way or another. And that we have hopes and we have anxieties and we have fears in some ways of what this is going to look like when a new person comes in. It's going to be a little different than it was before. There are some ways it'll probably be the same. And inevitably, In a community like this, we will have some of us who are attached to old things that we wish were the case that are not the case anymore. And we will have others of us that are attached to new things, new and exciting things that are going to be a part of this community that hadn't been before. This will happen, and this will be right ground for us looking forward for there to be conflict. We're all looking at this, and it's better that we look at it straight on, um, and I'm right there with all of us at the same time. But the promise to us is that Christ was there in the beginning of the story of Red Mountain Church. He has been there through every era. He is here now. He is there in the future. 
And the whole purpose that he is working with us is to this end, that we all with one voice, not just together, but even those with our neighbors and to the ends of the earth, would be brought to glory to extol the name of Jesus, because he is the lamb who is worthy to unlock history and to put us in an important place in the middle of that story. So as we go forward, as we look into this, as we look into this time coming, that we are encouraged in practical ways to welcome each other, to take risks, to have conversations with each other, even ones we might not be used to having conversations with. But more than that, to look to Jesus, the one who is the author of the story, that through all of the things that come and go, that because we are all looking to him and glorying in him, we are actually singing with one voice and we are growing together as one people in the process. So I'll stop there um, and we will pray that God indeed would do that among us. Father, thank you for your goodness through Jesus. Thank you for the confidence and the significance that he gives even as times change, even as crises come and come and as they go. We pray that you would protect us you would protect this church, each one of us individually, that we might truly delight in this big story that God is working in the world and in us. And that through that, you would indeed bring us together, that we would all be looking and singing in the same direction. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.